following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. About 19 years ago, uh, Pastor Ron, my dad, in case you didn't know, uh, <laughs> came to this church uh, and started filling pulpit. Um, and I remember having a conversation with him, like, oh, where, where, you, where were you preaching today? And he said, well, Erie Evangelical Free Church. Now, I had never been around an evangelical free church. There, there are none in Walnut where we grew up. There weren't any anywhere else I'd lived. So I'd never heard of an evangelical free church. My first question to him was, hold on, so they don't believe in evangelism? Because I heard evangelical free, like sugar free or fat free. They're evangelical free. See, I had a misconception of the terminology, right? And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I wonder what evangelical free means. You don't know it. Well, that means you need to sign up for our dig class, okay? Because we're going to talk about that in the dig class. But, <laughs> but I had this misconception with the terminology, with that term being used. When we look at today's passage in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to see John the Baptist proclaiming the coming of, of Jesus, of the Messiah, and we're going to recognize how he is setting the table for the ministry and the sacrifice and the victory of the Messiah. And, and, and while the Jews of that time recognized that he's talking about the Messiah, they had many misconceptions about what that word meant, about the implications of the Messiah coming. But John as a faithful messenger began to give them the fullness of the truth about what they were about to experience, the life-changing, eternal-altering message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we read this and we see how this plays out is, is this question, how, how do you and I hear that proclamation today? the proclamation of, of the coming Messiah, of the person, the work of Jesus Christ. How do we hear that today? Because the gospel is not something that is only for the lost. Right? You don't know Jesus, we need to give you the gospel. We need to share the gospel with you. And then once you're saved, you, you can forget it and go on to the, the other stuff. No, it's an eternal truth. One that we must preach to ourselves on a daily basis. Why? Well, John's going to show us here. The first reason is this, because the gospel addresses our need. The gospel addresses our need. We see this just in the very first two verses of Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay. Matthew just jumps right in with John, right? In the gospel of Luke, you get the story of, of John's origin as, as the forerunner to the coming Messiah, the one who would go before. In Luke chapter one, verse 16 and, and 17, in the prophecy about who John was, it says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, him in that instance is the Messiah, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous 
to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. All right, so Luke tells us who, who John is and what he's come to do, which is prepare the way for the Messiah to come. But Matthew's focus here is not so much on where John comes from or what his purpose was. Matthew's focus is on John's work. And this is a work that we see through his message in verse two. Read verse two again. It says, he's saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. A very simple proclamation, but one that is loaded with significance. Right? Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The call to repent, right? he's calling all people to turn away from their sin and turn back towards God. Right, if you go back and, and read Luke 1, 16 and 17, you get a little bit of a picture of that. But he says, repent, turn away from your sin, turn away from your selfishness, turn away from your striving, turn away from your error and your, your mistakes, turn away and turn back to God. Come to him now. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And what he's saying there is that the Messiah has arrived. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The Messiah is here and he is getting ready to redeem God's people. He is getting ready to do this work you've been waiting for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. See, John's declaration here is for the people to get ready because God is about to meet their greatest need, the need of salvation. As we go through this, we're going to see that the people misunderstand that greatest need. They think their greatest need is a political victory, a military uprising. But John says, no, no, no. He says, repent, turn away from your sin and turn to God. Why? Because you need salvation. If you've ever studied or, or, or looked at um, Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this that 12-step program. And if you read through the 12-step step program, and, and, and the, first, um, the first, first truth in that is this. It's we, it's we admit we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. This is the first step for an alcoholic to move into recovery. And I want you to listen to it again. Listen closely. We admit we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. See, for the alcoholic, for the alcoholic to move into recovery, they have to understand what their need is. The alcohol has power over them. They can't beat it on their own. And so their lives have become unmanageable. It's not that, eh, I should maybe give this up. They understand the depth of the depravity and the loss and the, the destruction that comes into their life because of this thing. John's declaration to you and me is very similar. When we look at John's declaration, the way we read that should be, we admit that we are powerless over sin and that our lives are unmanageable. And he says, now, people, the Messiah has come. You can't save yourself. You need a savior. 
So Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one, he is coming. He's coming. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring salvation. Three truths that we learn from this in our hearts about the nature of our hearts that we must accept before we go any further today. Three truths we have to accept from, from John's cry here. And the first is this, right? We are powerless over sin. We are powerless over sin. You and I, every single one of us in this room, we are sinners by nature and by choice. We are sinners by nature and by choice. If you don't agree with that, it's really simple to prove this, right? Look at your kids. Nobody taught your kid how to lie. Nobody taught your kid how to respond in anger. They do that naturally because they carry the same nature you and I do. We are by nature sinful people. And we're sinners by choice because every single one of us in this room, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to share it with anybody else or not, we can think of at least one time. Most of us can think of lots of times where we go, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I need to do. This is what God wants me to do, but I don't want to do it. So I'm not going to do it. None of you, uh, it was just me. Okay, that's fine. I've had those times. (laughs) We are sinners by nature, but we are sinners by choice. We are powerless over sin. I don't care how strong-headed you are. I don't care how committed you are to changing something. You will never overcome sin by your nature, by your desire, by your strength. You are incapable because we are powerless over sin. Number two, we are responsible for sin. When we think about sin, the fact that we are sinners by nature and by choice means that sin is not here because God failed us. Right? Sin didn't come into the world because God failed. It is not he who fails us. It is we who fail him and fail his holiness. We're powerless over sin and we are responsible for sin. Right? James, if you remember James 1, How does he say we're tempted towards sin? He says it's when God tempts us, right? James says, when God tempts you, here's what you do. No. He says, don't say that God tempts you because God doesn't tempt you to sin and he can't be tempted. Instead, he says, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by whose evil desires? His own. We are tempted. We are drawn to sin by our own evil desires. I am tempted to sin by my evil desires, just as you are by your evil desires. Right? We are responsible for sin. So we're powerless over sin and we are responsible for sin. Number three, we are lost to sin. We are lost to sin. If you and I are to be made right with God, it's not gonna be because we become better people. It's not going to be because we make better decisions. It's not going to be because we clean up our language. Because we are lost. Psalm 14, verse 3, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not one, not even you. I added the last part. See, we are lost by our own will, by our own abilities, 
by the best we have to offer. We are powerless over sin, we are responsible for sin, and we are lost to sin. See, this is where we have to start. We have to admit that we are powerless over sin and that our lives are unmanageable. Because if we don't grasp this, if you disagree with what I'm saying here, none of the rest of what we talk about today matters. Because if you don't believe this, you still think you're God. You still think you're in control. You still think you can be your savior. And you're in for a massive letdown. Listen, do we see our deepest need? What do we see as our deepest need? And do we realize that nothing we can do and nothing of this world can meet that need? That we need a savior who is not us. So when we embrace the gospel message, we recognize the magnitude and the constancy of our need. But as we continue on in John the Baptist's work, we then see that while the gospel addresses our need, the gospel issues a call. The gospel issues a call. We'll continue on here in verses 3 through verse 10. It says, for he, and he here is, is John, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for, for Abraham from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The gospel issues a call. When we read through this, we, we understand that John was a, a, he was a spectacle. Let's say it that way. Right? When you read descriptions of people in the Bible, it's usually going to tell you what makes them weird. Right? What makes them look weird. You never read a description of people in the Bible like, well, he was average height and you know, looked okay and was fairly clean and, you know. No, you get what makes them stand out, right? Except for when you read about the coming Messiah and it says he has no, nothing special about him that we should look at him and think he's the Messiah. But that's because we're talking about the Messiah who should look really different, but it's not about his physical appearance. Okay, that's a whole other rabbit trail for us to go down some other day. But, but John is a spectacle to see, right? Camel hair, Leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. Mmm, good breakfast, right? But even though he was this spectacle, <laughs> the crowds didn't flock to hear John preach or to even be baptized by him. 
Now, when they came, they did hear him preach and they were baptized by him, but that's not why they came. They came because God had brought them there to hear the message so that they could repent. Even this isn't about John. It was the call for repentance. And those who came who were gonna reject that call, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? The angry, foolish, religious folks. They're the ones who rejected the call to repent. They were rebuked powerfully by John. He says, you wanna, you wanna reject Jesus? You can, go for it, but understand that you'll be met with destruction and rejection. And he says, the ax will cut down the tree that doesn't bear fruit and it'll be thrown into the fire. I don't know when the last time you cut down a tree and threw it in a fire. It doesn't tend to live. It's been my experience anyway. So God, John is saying, listen, you have a choice. The gospel issues this call. You repent because of the truth or you continue to go your own way. Think you can be good enough. That you're somehow special. And just as John called the Israelites to repent at the coming Messiah, so too are you and I called through the gospel message to repent in light of the finished work of that Messiah. We have the blessing of being on this side of the cross where we look back and we see everything Jesus did and recognize the truth and the beauty of the gospel message. But the call issued is still the same. We repent or we reject Jesus. In Acts chapter two, the end of the, the sermon on, on Pentecost, Peter has, has preached this powerful message and it says, when they, when the, the people listening heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's his call? Repent. He says, this is what you do. You repent. And this is repeated throughout the book of Acts and throughout the gospels. The call is repent. And again, the gospel then is not a one and done, accept it and you're good call. The call of the gospel and Jesus finished work and redemption is a daily call to repentance, a moment by moment call to repentance. It's not something that you get done with and you get past. No, we all must be confronted with that call constantly. This is why Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's because we must constantly face that call. That means that we must constantly set aside our desires. We must constantly set aside our hopes, our dreams, our preferences every single day when they are in conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, what's that mean practically, right? Because we're not saying you should never do anything that you want to do. Right? That, that's not the point. 
But how does this look in our lives? Well, maybe it's about your relationship with your spouse. It's realizing that your spouse is not someone who is there to make you feel happy or complete in this life. Your spouse is one who is there for you to submit to, for you to sacrifice for, for you to show the love of Christ through the way that you serve him or her. Let's talk about when you go to work. Let's talk about your boss. Maybe you got a good boss. Maybe you got a horrible boss. Either way, your boss is not someone you put up with in order to make the money you need to pay the mortgage and buy groceries. Your boss is a beloved creation of God who gives you an opportunity to show faithfulness and loyalty day in and day out. Maybe we talk about that, that one person in your life who every time they speak, you just kind of roll your eyes. Like, I'd like to move on from this conversation now. Realize they're not a nuisance to your life. They're a person who offers you the chance to grow by sharing God's grace with them and loving them like a brother and sister in Christ. We can go on and on and on down the list here. We can talk about every relationship, every family member, every conflict, every circumstance in your life. And the call issued by the gospel is, will you repent of your desires and what you want and what you think is right in order to love and serve Jesus Christ? Or will you say, yeah, that's all well and good, but I'd rather hang on to this anger, to this bitterness, to this frustration, to this whatever. Again, like we talked about last week, it's one or the other. You don't get to say, yes, I completely give my life to Jesus except for this. Because if that's the case, you again have made yourself God. You choose what's worthy of letting go of. And God says, no, 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 you come to me. You follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Listen, do we allow ourselves to be confronted daily with the call of the gospel? Or have we reached a point in life where we're like, yeah, I've heard that. I'm good over here. Recognizing our need addressed by the gospel and acknowledging the call of the gospel will mean absolutely nothing in our lives. Unless we realize as we finish this passage that the gospel expects a change. The gospel expects a change. Verses 11 and 12 here. John speaking says, I baptize with you, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. The gospel expects a change. 
John basically tells everybody listening to him, he says, listen, if you've come to see me, you've missed the point. If you're here because of me, you're missing the point. My job is to point you to the Messiah who's about to come and who will change your life. Right? He has this humility of understanding. He's not the one, but Jesus is. And then he explains to them what's going on in front of them. He says, my baptism is, is for repentance. This is something you do as a declaration of your understanding of how good God is and how much you need him. But he says, the Messiah will come and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He says, this divine purpose of the Messiah coming to baptize has, has two, uh, two keys to it, two reasons for this baptism. And it's important for us to see these because they mark what, what Jesus is doing. First, this baptism is to mark the faithful. It's Jesus marking those who are his own. He says he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, right? When we come to salvation in Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit as well. Right? He says, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire, that what exactly is meant by fire there is, is highly debated in, in, in theological circles, okay? The most likely understanding of it is that he's saying, Jesus is coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, meaning he will bring a cleansing, right? That fire is a, a cleansing. It's a purification. It's burning away everything that is, uh, that is not Christ-like. Right? And, and there are some other aspects to this. Like some people see that and they point to Pentecost, like the, the tongues of fire that come down. And there's several Old Testament references. But the, the big picture here is Jesus comes to mark those who are his own, to set them apart from those who are wicked, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be purified. But second, it says that Jesus comes to, to judge and to separate the righteous from the unrighteous his children from the world, those who accept the call to repentance and those who reject it. Follow Jesus or reject him. This is John's message. Follow Jesus or reject him. Either way, the gospel will change you one way or the other. Think of it this way. We're gonna play a game, okay? I don't want you to give me the answer just yet. So hold on. We got door number one, and door number two. You got to pick one. Don't tell anybody which one you're picking. Okay, just in your head. Door number one, door number two. I'm not going to remember which one I said was one and which one I said was two. Door number one, door number two. Pick one in your head. Just think about it. Okay, now here's the deal. Behind one of the doors is a lifetime prison sentence. Behind the other door is $30 million. You're going to pick one or the other. Here's the thing with that doesn't matter which door you pick, your life is dramatically altered, right? I know there's some people like, well, money wouldn't change me. Yes, it will. $30 million will change your life. It may not change who you are, but I guarantee some of the things you're worried about today, you won't worry about tomorrow. I guarantee some of the trips you're planning in the future will be very different than what you have planned right now. Because that money will change some of the things you do. Your life will be changed our response to Jesus is very similar. There's door one or there's door two. One is enslavement 
and death. The other is freedom and life. Our response to Jesus expects and even demands a change in our lives. And if the gospel doesn't produce a change in us, and listen, we're not saying, hey, if the gospel doesn't drastically alter everything you think and, and you're, you're now 100%, like you get everything right now, then you must not love Jesus. No, sometimes that change is just the desire for change that brings about very incremental growth and maturity in your life. Right? But if your interaction with Jesus Christ doesn't produce some kind of change, I'm not sure you've really thought about what the gospel means. And I'm not sure you've really encountered Jesus. And that sounds harsh, but remember, I'm not saying that. John says that. So if you want to be mad at anybody, be mad at John. Through the gospel message, our lives are changed. Through the gospel message, the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we are moved from sinners to saints. We are moved from lost to found. We are moved from enslaved to redeemed. We are given new titles and new expectations when we read through scripture of what happens when we come to be followers of Jesus Christ. Right? First Peter 1 Peter 1.9 calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that we might proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 and 16 says, for to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we're the aroma of death leading to death, but others, the aroma of life leading to life. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says we are ambassadors for Christ. Right? And we can go on and on and on and on, and we could pick verse after 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 verse in the New Testament that says who we are now that we have responded to Jesus Christ with repentance and sacrifice and devotion. Yeah, we're a chosen race. Yeah, we're a royal priesthood. Yes, we are a, a people of God. Yes, we are the fragrance of Christ. Yes, we are ambassadors. But here's the, the really cool thing here. None of these are mere title shifts. There are identity changes that demand a change in behavior to accompany them. Right? We not only receive a new identity in Christ, but we are to reflect that new identity in Christ. Aaron and I didn't meet each other until we were 30 years old. So I had a pretty good time to live as a single guy, with my own house, my own space, all of that stuff. If Aaron and I had gotten married and I said, hey, this is awesome. Now I'm going to continue to live exactly the way I lived when I was single, spend money the way I spent when I was single, eat the way I ate when I was single, spend my spare time the way I spent it when I was single, how happy do you think our marriage would be? How long do you think that would have lasted? See, the change in identity of going from single to being married demanded a change in my behavior to fit that new identity. The joy of the redemption in the gospel 
compels us to change. In the same way, because when we understand the gospel, when we come to terms, when we come to grips with who Jesus is and what he does, we look and we see that the God who created the heavens and the earth, created us, watched us reject him and walk away from him, watched us choose our own way, choose ourselves over his good, perfect, and holy ways. And when he should have just said, you know what, you want to do that? Fine, go for it. Good luck. Let's see how this works out for you. He let us run, but he continued to offer redemption. He continued to love us. He continues to love us until the time came for him to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, to live that absolutely perfect life that made him the only worthy sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. so that he could die sacrificially in our place, offering his blood in place of ours, so that he could be laid in a tomb where he would victoriously rise on the third day, conquering not only sin by his death, but death by his resurrection, so that he could ascend to the right hand of the Father where he sits as our high priest, our advocate, so that when we stand before the Lord in judgment, It's not about us, what we've done, what we've accomplished, how good or how bad we've been. It's about the person and the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, the gospel demands a change. And our goal in that is not to be better so that we're worthy of salvation, because that's never going to happen. If you think that can happen, we need to have a conversation, because you're wrong. You are 100% wrong. We will never be worthy of salvation, but that's not our goal. But if we are willing to surrender to Jesus, not only as our savior, but as our Lord, then there's a change in our lives, a desire to know him, to walk with him, to celebrate him, to glorify him to be used by him, not for our own gain, but for the glory of his kingdom. Listen, is is a gospel-driven change in our lives. And that's the key. This is not about changing and being a better person. It's about a gospel-driven change. Is that evident in our lives? Is that evident to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to the waiter or waitress at lunch today. John's proclamation under God's authority for God's people to repent from their sin and turn back to the Messiah is the exact same cry that is set before you and me today. If you've never bent your knee and surrendered to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, Know that as you sit here today, you sit here condemned by your nature and by your choice of selfishness, rebellion, and sin. And that there's nothing you can do to make that right. And I don't ever say that to be harsh or to be mean. I say it because it is a necessary truth to grasp. And if that's you, then you deep in your heart, you know that that is true. 
You know that nothing in this world ever has for more than a fleeting moment filled that emptiness and that brokenness in your heart. Now, if you have turned your life over to Jesus, know that the call to take up your cross daily and follow him is a daily call. A daily call in response to the gospel. We must constantly and relentlessly set aside our preferences, our desires, and our own flawed standards to see God's glory, Christ's majesty, and the Holy Spirit's power praised and magnified through our submissive obedience. This is because the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, meets our deep-seated need of our hearts for a savior who can deliver us from our sins. And that call for response has been issued with the realization that there is one who has done all that must be done in order to meet that need that we have. And with that call made known, our lives must be changed. Our hearts will be softened or our hearts will be hardened. There's always a change. Church family, may we be willing to be confronted by, encouraged by, renewed by, and shaped daily by the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we do, may the joy and the hope of our faith be evident to all and point to those around us. Point them to the the love, the mercy, the grace, and the peace of God, the King, to the glory of his kingdom. Come near to us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the ways you have loved us beyond measure and beyond all reasonable explanation. And as we reflect on that love, Father, we repent of our sin. We repent of the the sins of our past. We repent of the sins of the moment. We repent of the sins we know we will commit as we fail moving forward. And as we repent, we rest in your forgiveness. And the fact that the blood of the lamb covers us. And Father, we rejoice in that truth. And we pray that moving forward, our lives would be shaped daily, moment by moment, by the gospel, by Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign. Because that is the truth that brings salvation and redemption. Father, we are so grateful and so thankful We love you, and in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.